It is uh, good to be with you all. Again, my name is Robert Kim. Uh, I just want to give a quick introduction. I know I, I, there was ever such a brief bio. Uh, I planted a church in the Ambler, Pennsylvania area uh, called Grace Point Church. I then planted a daughter church named Grace Point Church up in the Lansdale area. And this past September of 2018, I assumed a role called the church planning coordinator for the Metro Philadelphia Church Planning Partnership, which basically means for the PCA, I help plant churches throughout Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Jersey. Uh, currently, right now, we have about 22 church plants in those tri-states area. What I really enjoy, the fact, is that in those 22 church plants, we have not only congregations like Hope, which is one of them, uh, but we have congregations that are reaching out in particular to the minority cultures. Uh, we have, uh, I'm trying to make sure I forget, I will probably forget some, uh, Albanian, Chinese, Russian, uh, Brazilian, Portuguese speaking, and again, all the other folks that are represented kind of throughout the Philadelphia metro area. And so my heart's delight is really to see how God is raising up church planters uh, to kind of, like Will and Grace, to just go out there and live by faith, to believe that God is going to advance his kingdom and that God and really that as the promise of scripture says that God will build his church and the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against it um, so that's my joy my delight on a personal level I'm married I've been married actually this past May for 20 years to one man uh, she was our women's ministry director so I met her in seminary uh, and as such we have three children uh, my oldest just graduated and is going to Temple University next year so Elijah's 17 uh, Sophia is 13 and uh, my last is Clay at 11 and then for fun we just got a dog last year he's a Morky and his name is Mission. And so I love the fact that we have kind of the encompass thing. Uh, I've been a pastor now for 23 years, and it's weird to say that I've retired from pastoral ministry and kind of done this kind of regional thing. Um, but God has really given me a heart to see again missions. And so actually just a quick background. I originally thought I was going to be a missionary somewhere, let's say, for example, like Kazakhstan, which there was a missionary that was trying to recruit me there. Um, and yet all of a sudden God said, hey, Robert, there's a great mission field that doesn't have to be overseas. The mission field happens to be here. So when I took the call to plant Grace Point, it was actually with that in mind to say that there was a great mission field here in the United States. So I went all the way from California to Philadelphia. Now, again, I want to remind you that that's the life of missions. It may not seem like the life of missions, but I wake up every day thinking I, I left 75-degree Huntington Beach weather uh, to Philadelphia, especially in the winters, and said, I'm on mission. And so uh, God has been very gracious. Uh, and I will say this. There is an invitation that God gives all of us to simply join him. Right? And it's really exciting. It's been exhilarating. Um, and it's been a lot of fun for me just to kind of do that. With that said, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, today's voice is not my voice. I know it's going to be fast. You guys can already pick that up. Uh, so I hope you had your coffee. If you're not, if not, there's coffee back there. I think there's going to be coffee back there. Um, but all I have to say is I love preaching. And I love preaching this particular text because I think this falls fresh on both the new and the old, meaning that it's, it's a gospel reminder for all of us. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 19 is where we're going to be looking at. The sermon is entitled, A God Who Sees, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. The sermon is entitled, again, A God Who Sees. Hear now a reading of God's word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is as saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And all of God's people say, Amen. Would you pray with me as we hear God's word this morning? Father, indeed, as we come this morning to this day, would you remind us again that indeed you are a God who sees. And I pray, O oh Lord, Father, that because this is an extraordinary Sunday, because, Lord, you call us into your presence. Help us, Lord, to be seen, that we would not hide from you, that we would not be ashamed. Because, Father, you already know. You know the deepest recesses of our hearts. And yet, Lord, you call us to your Son, that we might have faith in him to not only receive eternal life, but to be loved by him in such a way that makes us the children of God. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would open up our eyes and our ears this morning. Help us, Lord, to see Christ in a fresh way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with just asking all of you this question, which is, when was the last time you've been seen? Now, again, I know it's easy for us to kind of come to a conclusion and say it's, we've been seen every single day. For example, right, this morning you can say you came into this building and someone saw me. But here's the reality of life, is it not? That oftentimes we can say that we see each other, but we really don't see each other. For example, my wife and I, uh, we live pretty busy lives. And all that to say is this, there are a lot of times in which we'll check in on, like for example, right before we go to bed and we're simply saying, you know what? We saw each other all day to a certain extent, but we really didn't see each other. We didn't really look deep into each other's life and to be able to say, you know what, I really saw you. Some of you, perhaps on a given Sunday, you've come into these very seats and you've said, yeah, I've come into a church. And the nice thing about, by the way, smaller churches versus bigger churches, and hopefully this is the reality, is that when you come into this room, you actually say, no, I saw you. I actually see who you are and I actually know you. I know your name. I know your struggles. I know your joys. I actually know you. And I would actually argue this, that one of the reasons why we have kind of the phenomena of megachurches is that more and more people actually want to go to church in this idea of anonymity. They actually don't want to be seen. Most people actually want to simply say they can come in and come out, and no one will actually know who they really are. Because here's the thing, our default model, our, my, our, our perspective, is that most of us actually don't want to be seen. We don't really want people to know who we really are. For example, the modern phenomenon of social media, which obviously my children are experts at, but all that to say is this, what has social media done? And think through this in particular, like the, uh, from even experts as they're writing about it. They're saying social media, all, whatever social media, your flavor, right? Snapchat, Facebook, whatever it might be. All those things are producing this idea to say, we think we have greater connection with each other, 
But here's the reality is we actually have less connection each with each other. The reality is that with all the advent of social media, people say, oh, we have you know, this greater sense of like, I can have a thousand friends. But here's the reality is more and more people are struggling with anxiety, and not only that, but actually they're struggling with more sense of loneliness. And this is now being well-documented. Psychologists and counselors are all saying this is what social media is producing. And what are we saying here? We're saying that we think we are seen, but in fact, we aren't. And perhaps the greatest danger is this, is if we do that not only to one another, how much more so do we do that before a holy God? And my question to you is this, is not only when was the last time that you were seen, both perhaps to your spouse or even to those in this room or your closest friend, but when was the last time that you came before God himself and you said, God, you see me. You know me. And here's the reality of that statement. The reality of that statement is this, is that when in the gospel, when we truly understand it, I'm going to give you this phrase, and it's actually a phrase that's now been made a little bit more famous by a song by Torrin Wells called Fully Known or Known. Um, But all I'll say is this, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you really understand what Jesus has done for you, it's to say this, is that we are fully known and fully loved. Again, fully known and fully loved. And here's the reality of those statements, right? If in the gospel we believe this, right, to be fully known and fully loved, it actually brings out the grace of God in a very fresh way that says, you know what, that becomes amazing. But here's the problem, I think, and it's actually something that we actually struggle with both, again, interpersonally, meaning man on man or man to woman, but also all the more so between us and God. Here's the thing, right? We often do one without the other. But yet the gospel says both of those statements need to be coupled together. So let me kind of illustrate this. Um, To say that you are fully loved without being fully known is kind of almost superficial, right? So think about this, right? I am a guest preacher. I do not know you. Most of you in this room, I actually don't even know your name. So I, as a pastor, can come up here and say, you know what? I love all of you. And in a general sense, that's true, right? I love the church. But here's the problem with that statement, and you will feel this if I say that. You feel it to a certain level of superficiality. Because why? Because I don't know you. Your pastor, Will, has sought to shepherd you, pastor you, which is what? To know you and then also love you at the same time. And some of us, right, when we think about the love of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, maybe perhaps you say this to yourself. I get it. Well, Jesus loves me. But do you realize that if you do not do this aspect of saying, again, fully loved, but not fully known, you'll actually only feel a level of superficiality. You won't get the deep sense of realizing what Jesus was about, which is to say, no, he actually fully knows you. And yet he loves you. Let me do the opposite, which is just as important. If God fully knows you, for example, Psalm 139, where the psalmist recites and says what? That even before a thought is on my head, before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it. If I try to run away from you, Lord, yet you're still there, that the Lord knows every facet of you. If he knows you, and then he doesn't love you, it's the ultimate form of rejection. It's the very thing, in particular as a parent, I will say this, especially since my 17-year-old right now is in a period of rebellion, and it breaks my heart, even in my conversation this morning with him as I dropped him off, is that he feels a sense of rejection because he says, you know me, Dad, and yet why is it that I feel like you don't love me? 
because he doesn't know the expression of my love for him as a father. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, cites it this way in terms of the balance of the two. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. That's that rejection piece. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And again, for those of you who are married in this room, be reminded that to your spouse, that is the beauty of being married and covenanted with one another, that you fully know your spouse, and yet you also fully love them as well, and yet how much more so before a holy God that we realize that as well. With that said in mind is this, as we dive into John chapter 4, realize that here is a woman that ultimately does what? She doesn't want to be seen, and yet God has a divine encounter with her, and we're going to look at that in terms of the importance, but what I first want to do is just kind of talk about this idea of the word significance, or I'm going to kind of make the emphasis on the word, a significance, which is this. Oftentimes when we look at scripture, some of the times what you need to do is you need to look at the signs. And so, for example, for those of you who have a license, you'll realize that road signs are very important. Why? because they tell us something important. And the same thing is true, by the way, when we look at the Bible. Sometimes we look at it and we say, I see a sign, but we might miss its significance or its significance. So today we're going to look at a sign, and the sign is the well. And what do signs do? Signs, again, point us to a greater reality. So I'm going to give you a quick story and then a more kind of comical story. The quick story is this. We had some tourists come by from California visiting up me in, in Ambler. I live pretty close to Westminster Theological Seminary, which is where Will actually graduated from, where I actually first met Will. Um, but all that to say is this. Uh, at Westminster Theological Seminary, my tourists wanted to come and say, let's go take a picture in front of the sign. Now, any of you who have been to Glenside, PA, know where Westminster is, you'll realize it's a very tiny campus. There's nothing really that great about it. And yet I have these two tourists taking a picture in front of the sign. Why? Because for them, they've heard all these great stories about this, you know, it, you know, this institution that created all these great pastors. And so all they thought was there's a sign. The sign's not important. It points to the greater reality of the history of the school. Now, again, in more comical form, I once did this. I don't recommend this. I took my kids down to uh, Disney World, and we drove down. Imagine for a second, right, for this drive, we drove all the way down, and we get to the sign right in front of Walt Disney World that says, Walt Disney World. Imagine for a second, I tell my children, there's the sign. Let's turn back and go home. Right? And what would they do? They would scream and say, no, Dad, we got to go in. Because why? Because the sign points to all the fun the reality within. And here's the thing, right? If signs point to greater reality, what you don't want to do then is miss the importance of the sun, of the sign. The second thing I want to say here in John 4 is that the Bible says here that Jesus had to travel through Samaria. Now, again, he was going from Judea to Galilee. And so to give you kind of a historical backdrop is oftentimes when Jews would make that particular trip, the reality is that they wouldn't go through Samaria. And if you look at John 4, 4 in particular, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Here's the reality is that they would actually, Jews would avoid Samaria because Samaritans, which was the breed, were half-breeds or half-Jews, half-Gentiles. And they had their own kind of dysfunctions, to, at least according to the Jews. They were, it's a race issue, but it was also a theological issue because they worshipped on different mountains. They had different customs. They had different parts of scripture. And they would avoid each other. So much, in fact, that if you imagine, a straight shot would have been going through Samaria. But they would let all the way around the long way just to avoid Samaria. When the Jews were in distress, they called upon the Samaritans to say, help us in a time of war. And the Samaritans turned their backs to them. 
When the Samaritans were in distress, they called upon the Jews, and the Jews turned their back on them. And here's the reality. That's the type of animosity that they had. And yet in this passage, what you see is this. There is a divine encounter at the right time, at the right hour, Jesus meets this woman. What I want to encourage you, even here in this room, is this. Your presence here today is much in the same vein. You're here at a time of encountering Jesus and his word. And my prayer is this, is that in the same way that this woman's life was transformed, your life too would be transformed because of what Christ does for this woman, which is this. He sees her. He says, I see you, I know you, and yet I love you. With that said is this, there's three dimensions of this well that I want to point out. And so a God who sees our needs. And there's three things that we would see, which is to say a God who sees our needs, our, our social needs. He sees our spiritual needs. And then lastly, he needs our, our need to be loved, or I would say betrothal. So when I first preached this, I used to say social, spiritual, and betrothal. Um, some people didn't know what that word betrothal meant. So all that to say is this. I'm just going to simply say a God who sees our need to be, to be related to one another, our need to be, again, our deepest spiritual needs, and lastly, our need to be loved. With that said, let me begin with the first point a God who sees our social needs so here's the reality again I've already told you about this distinction between uh, racial issues between the Samaritans and the Jews but here's the thing when you look at this passage you realize again what Jesus is doing as he encounters this woman he breaks down every social norm in his time he goes up as a Jew to a Samaritan woman and he doesn't treat her like a enemy but he says woman would you give me a drink approaching her like a friend so what you see almost immediately is the fact is that all the distinctions, right, the spiritual, racial, and social tension between the Jews and the Samaritans that has been well documented is almost being broke down. In this particular case, there's no exception. The fact that Jesus as a man, in particular as a rabbi, is going up to a woman is almost just as astonishing. And so again, and Jesus' readers would have heard this and said, man, this whole story, this encounter just seems like an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. And yet Jesus is going up to this woman again at noon. Because why? Because here is this woman who doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want this encounter. And Jesus comes up to her and says, you know what? I'm not going to approach you like an enemy, like a stranger even. But like a friend, I'm going to come before you. And I'm going to ask you for a drink. And we're going to commune and fellowship with one another as friends would do. The very idea here is that she's coming in at noon. And again, I've told you before already that you know, getting used to the East Coast was interesting because of hot heat and humidity, in particular in the summer. So by the winters, I'm not a fan of. Summers, I'm not a fan of. I'm just going to put that out there, right? So all that to say is this. In, in Philadelphia summers in particular, right, imagine for a second if you were this woman and you had to go and get a, a, a jar or a barrel of water from a well. Now, when would you want to go fill that jar? Would it be, for example, right, uh, at noon, at one of the hottest points of the day, commentators have conjectured that in the particular where this well was, that temperatures would have been 110 plus humidity, much like Philadelphia, as hot as it would get. Would you come at noon where perhaps temperatures would peak and there was no respite in terms of you know, shade or anything else? The answer is no. When would people go to the well? They would either go in the morning when it was coolest, or they would go in the evening. That's it. Why would you want to go at noon? The only reason why you would want to go at noon is because you didn't want to be seen. And we'll look later of her past. 
because she wants to hide. And I want to encourage you to realize this, that in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 in particular, when we see the fall, what do we realize that's the indictment of humanity upon their sin and their brokenness? Is that they would hide from God. When God came back after the fall, they sought to hide, cover themselves up. And much like this woman, in the same exact fashion, she tries to hide not only from people, but ultimately before God. And yet it's God who goes up to this woman and says, give me a drink. And here's the beautiful thing about this passage is one, not only is there this encounter that when she seeks to hide, but she actually goes in such a way where again, Jesus is approaching, he breaks out all the barriers. Again, race is on display, gender is on display, every aspect in terms of, of even sinfulness and brokenness between a holy God and sinful beings. God says, you know what, I've parted away from it. It's now been demolished. And how do we know this, right? Again, remember what I said about this idea of the, the well being significant? Well, in Genesis 21, Genesis 24, and Genesis 26, here's what you're going to look in those passages. You'll realize that the well became what we call a, a kind of a social breakdown uh, in, in, in particular in terms of Scripture, which is to say this, it's where scores were settled, right? And so let me imagine for a second, when I grew up in Huntington Beach, California, in elementary school, and again, if there's kids in this room, I don't want to promote this, so you don't have to close his eyes. It's pretty PG, but all I have to say is this, right? Uh, we would get in fights on the playground, right? And this is how we would settle our fights, right? We would say, Robert, 3 p.m., Lake Park after school, <laughs> right? And so this is literally right around the corner from our elementary school, there was a Lake Park. And here's what we as kids would do. We would go after school, get in a big circle, whoever two people had the, the, the tit or the tat, whatever it might have been, would get into the circle and they would do a bunch of different things. Sometimes it would just be word fights. Sometimes it would be kind of a, a wrestling match. And sometimes it would be like, you know, a fist fight per se. But what was fascinating about Lake Park was this. So we would do this, right, as kids. But the next day, and oftentimes this is, by the way, how childish it was. Sometimes it was simply as me throwing a, a, a dodgeball too hard at someone. And so I said, Robert, you threw that dodgeball too hard. Lake Park after school. I was like, fine, <laughs> right, let's go to Lake Park. So we would do this, right? But here's the crazy thing, right, about Lake Park. The next day on the playground, we went back as if nothing happened. Because why? Because the score was settled. The debt was paid. Genesis 21, 24, and 26, what you're going to see is this. Those are passages where the well was used where financial scores or perhaps personal scores were settled. What you realize that Jesus is doing to this woman is saying this, look, you could realize that whatever enmity you have, not only between each other, but ultimately before God, but that Jesus is settling the score. And how do we know he settled it? You look fast forward, and again, on the work of the cross, we realize that all of our debts were paid by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful when you think through again that you can relate then to a God and say, God, you're not holy and distant, but again, he's breaking down that barrier so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence like a friend, like a son and a daughter of the Most High. The second thing we see here is the God who sees our spiritual needs. One of the things that's well documented in this passage is we see this woman's brokenness or her sinfulness. Jesus' interactions, that he sees her unfaithful ways, not only again in terms of her personal life, but all the more so ultimately before God. Here he is and says, woman, would you give me a drink? She says, no. Well, yes, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus, as the prophet, the insightful one, says, you're right. You don't just have one husband. You've had five, and you're now with a sixth man. So this woman, right, looks and says, oh, my goodness, you know me. You saw right through me. You saw my disguise. 
And here's the reality, right? He wasn't just looking at the contextual aspect of her life. But what was he doing? He was diagnosing her spiritual condition. And how do we know this, right? So G.K. Chesterton has this awesome quote. And again, it's a little bit more PG-ish, but all that to say is this. He says, every man knocking at the door of a brothel is in fact looking for God. Let me say that again. Every man knocking at the door of a brothel is in fact looking for God. So here was a woman. Think through. Five husbands up to this point. A sixth man in whom she's with at Jesus' documents. And what Jesus is doing is this. He's diagnosing and saying, look, you've gone almost to a well in which every single time you go there, what you're going to realize is this. It leaves you empty and it leaves you thirsty. It leaves you coming back for more. Because here's the problem, because you've made men your idol. And what he's doing is he's diagnosing every aspect of who she is and says, look, do you not see this? That what you're searching for is in fact him, but what you're trying to go to is these men to to offer you what God could only offer. And here's the reality. Oftentimes, we look at this passage and we want to judge this woman. We can say easily, oh, those sinners out there. But do you realize again that this is the condition of all of our hearts, that we're all prone to idolatry? I love Keller and his kind of things. He says power, control, approval, authority. Those are kind of the metal idols that we often will deal with. But isn't it true that if you really diagnose your own heart, that you also know your your proneness or your, your, your proclivity toward idols? So for this woman, it was men. But my question to you in this room is, what's yours? What's the thing that you keep, keep going to in which you say it's just like water? It's almost like a drug. You keep going back to you say, if I could just get one more, man, I'll feel full. I'll feel satisfied. And yet this woman, right, it's her men. It's all these men that she's filling her life with. And what Jesus is diagnosing and says, look, you can keep going back to that well, but because it keeps leaving you thirsty, why not come to me? Why not come and realize that, again, he sees your deepest spiritual need. It says the only way that that can be satisfied, your spiritual thirst, and I will say this as an absolute, whatever you're seeking to fill your life apart from Jesus will continue to leave you thirsty and empty. And only faith in Jesus Christ, a relationship with him, leads us in such a way that the very water that Jesus offers here that says we will never be thirsty again. In Genesis 16, this is where we see this well, the significance of a spiritual thing. In Genesis 16, Rachel is, or not, sorry, Sarah is running away in particular because of the relationship of Hagar. If you look at your Bibles in Genesis 16, 13, you can turn there, you can just read it for you, but all I have to say is this, God approaches Sarah and says what? So she called the name of the, of the, sorry, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. And that's the point of this. In this passage, what we see is this. God, Jesus, looks straight into this woman's heart. He says, I see you. I see your brooks, just like he saw Sarah's brokenness and trying to run away from God in the situation with Hagar. God sees her. Church, do you realize that God sees you as well? What would it look like if this church, to start with the premise to say, you know what? This is a church that does not hide not only before God, but also before one another, that you're able to simply come as you are and be able to say, look, here it is. I'm broken. I'm struggling through. Here are my idols. 
And yet, together as a body of Christ, you are repenting. And again, seeing as, as the promise of Scripture says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for wa- the water, so my soul longs after you, O Lord, that only Jesus would be able to satisfy. The last thing we see here is this, is a God who satisfies our need to be loved. And again, some have argued to say that the greatest two premises is to be loved and to love are our kind of gospel identity. But here is what we see in this particular passage is that this woman ultimately, in all the things that she was seeking, in my opinion, was wanting to be loved. All the husbands in her life was, I just want someone to love me unconditionally. And just like, for example, the need in all of your hearts, in all of our hearts, in particular in our children's hearts, is that very message that says to them, you are loved as you are. And here the thing is that John, in particular, the Gospel of John, is concerned about this very idea that Jesus' salvation and the kingdom of this woman comes. And here's the reality in terms of her husband's, is that what we want to see is that part of this is this idea of a wedding. And what do I mean by that? So follow with me. This is going to be a little bit hard, especially perhaps on a Sunday morning, but follow. Ephesians 5 says this, right? The Bible is, or the, that, the, that Christ, right, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? But if you're reminded, at the end of that passage in Ephesians 5, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes and says what? I'm not talking about husband and wife. I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. So Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. Okay, now follow with that's kind of, I'm fleshing this out for you. The second part that we see in the Bible is this. There's another uh, Old Testament prophet that talks about Hosea, the prophet Hosea. Remember, Hosea is this upright prophet, and all of a sudden he's tasked to say, well, go find for yourself a spouse, a wife, and your wife will be Gomer, and Gomer will be a harlot. She'll be a prostitute. She'll be someone who was unfaithful to you. And God calls Hosea to say what? No, Lord, I don't want, but God says, no, stand faithful despite her faithful, unfaithful ways. Be faithful to her. And if you've seen the passage, right, that's a, a scriptural portrait, right, ultimately of Christ in the church as well, right, that he loves the church despite the fact that we're actually prone to wander. And yet the beauty of the passage is what? Is that God still still remains faithful and abiding to her. Much in the passage that we see, right, this idea here in this passage is that Jesus is coming up to this woman, and I want you not to miss this. Jesus is coming up to this woman. He's asking her for a drink, but what you need to see is that the significance of the well wasn't just simply saying, again, the, the social dimension, breaking down the score. It wasn't just the spiritual dimension that he saw deep within her needs. But believe it or not, it was a betrothal indication. Genesis 29, we see in the passage, right, that wells were used as places where men would seek out brides. For example, in Genesis 29, if you were to turn there, Jacob seeks out Rachel for a bride at a well. It's kind of like the e-harmony of Jesus' time was the well. Now follow with me. If you see in this passage, Jesus is seeking out a bride. What is his bride? It's a sinful Samaritan woman who's had five husbands and who's now in her sixth man. Jesus pursues a bride that is sinful. And here's the thing, that may sound like startling to you, but that is the core message of the gospel, is it not? That Jesus seeks and saves that which is lost? That the bride of Christ is not, you know, a museum of saints, but it's a hospital for sinners? 
But the church becomes a place where, again, sinful women just like this ought to be welcomed because why? This is the bride in whom Jesus pursues. And the last point about this idea of being betrothed or to be loved is this. In the midst of a wedding in Jesus' time, one of the things we realize is that, you know, back in the day, there's this thing called a dowry, right? And a dowry was what? Uh, If a man wanted to pursue a bride, he would oftentimes have to uh, have a significant amount of money or savings or livestock or something as a deposit to say, I want to have your, you know, the, the daughter or, you know, the woman for his bride. He would have to pay all these things, right? So for example, like our own modern day of a dowry is what? Is a diamond ring. And so when I was in seminary and I was about to get married, I will say this, it was really difficult to save up money to buy a diamond ring to, to propose to my wife. And yet the reality is that idea of a dowry is what? Is I, I paid a cost to have my bride. One of the things we see in this passage is what? It's like Jesus is going to this woman like, look, you've had all these husbands. Well, you have this one final husband who will love you unconditionally. And here's the price I will pay. I'll pay my very life. That's what the Bible says, does it not? That the bride of Christ was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. That Jesus loved the bride so much that he would give his only life on her behalf. And here's the beauty of it, right? In the hands of a faithful husband, how amazing it is the woman feels secure and how much more so for us as a church that you would be reminded to say, you know what? It's in his hands. When, he, when I realize again that I, the church, is his bride, that we stand convinced that again, it is him who has loved us with an everlasting love so that when, even when we are faithless, Jesus remains faithful. So let me conclude by just encouraging you with these thoughts. The first is this. And I think this is significant. Here is a woman who was a sinner. sinner. Here is a woman who had race and gender issues upon her side. And yet she was welcomed before Jesus. My question that I often ask is, would she be welcomed here? The second part I would encourage you is this. Is when was the last time you've really been seen before God? And even as we approach the table today, would you be reminded of this? That you would approach not in pretense or some idea behind a mask or a wall. But would you come as one who is thirsty? Not thirsting after the things of this world that we knew will not satisfy. But to be able to say that even the elements that Jesus offers in the great idea of the communion table is that it's through these things that we know that we would not be hungry again or thirsty again, but satisfied again only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The last thing is this. Some of you who came in this room, if you're a newcomer or an unbeliever, if you've never thought through this idea to say that Jesus could love you, here's the great declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus loves sinners. All of which, all of us are sinners and who can be loved by Jesus Christ simply by putting our faith and trust in him. And there's this great invitation to simply say, you know what, I come as I am. I come as one who is broken. I come as one who is needy. I might even want to hide. And yet when I come before him and when he sees me, to be known and to be loved is the greatest truth of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me as we come now to the table? Would you for a moment, just in prayer, uh, just bow your heads. And the end of Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way within me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you ask the Lord just to search you?
to know you, and also then to receive his love for you.